Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast that explores mental health, especially for folks of color. I'm your host, Johnzel Anderson. I'm a licensed therapist and owner of Panoramic Counseling in Richmond, Virginia. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Hello, everyone. I am excited to kick off the mental health book club that I've been talking about that was funded by a grant that I received. So each month, as a reminder, uh, there will be a new book with a mental health theme to it. And I will select a handful of people to actively participate in the book club, and we'll meet weekly via Zoom. And those who are selected to participate receive a free copy of the book shipped to them, paid for by the grant funds that I received. But to make this inclusive for anybody who wants to participate, I am sharing the recordings of the Zoom meetings on this podcast. So today's episode that you're about to listen to is the first of four meetings for the book, I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy. We talked about chapters one through 23. So if you haven't read those chapters yet, definitely hit pause and go get those read first before listening to this episode. Welcome, everyone. To get started, we're doing chapters one through 23. Most of these chapters are like two pages. So I, I feel like it was a really quick read. So to kind of jump in, let's talk about like uh, initial reactions. I mean, wow. <laughs> like this is like enmeshed parenting beyond it's, you know, just everything she does is just to please her mom so far, you know, like everything. So. That's a good start. So um, for me, uh, the mom was about 70% similar to mine. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of like Mm -hmm. reading what I went through, Um, especially the dramatic cancer. Look what we went through together and it's definitely coming back. And if you looked at me cross-eyed, you're going to bring my cancer back. Um, Kind of it hit. uh, I really did to it in a fundamental way. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Who else has initial reactions to this book? I think in the sense of some parents try to live through their kids when their dreams aren't fulfilled when they're kids. It's very prevalent in this book. So, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. Everybody wants to feel like they have a legacy, so to speak, with their kids. So if they didn't meet the standards or goals for themselves, they kind of push it on their kids sometimes. I think because I'm a therapist, sometimes I'll like look at things and like, like kind of diagnosed like vicariously I saw a lot of dysfunction with the mom that like guilt-ridden uh people pleasing from Jeanette and just anxiety across the board so those were some of my first takes away from it I think for me how even as a young child first of all her memories in the beginning when she was two and her mother was mad at her for singing was it jingle bells in the hospital she was two, you know, I thought that was, I I don't know why that just struck me, something probably my mom would do as well. Um, But also that she's supporting the entire family um, as a youngster and her grandfather at the very end approaches her and says, you know, I'm worried about the stress that you're on. It's almost like the grandpa, her, what did she call her, her poppy seed or something, you know, like he's trying to give her a toy that he got at Disneyland. But she's like, I don't have time for that. I got to make money for my family. So 
So I don't know how old she was, but it couldn't have been more than 10. I don't know. That just really struck me as profound. A lot of pressure. It seemed like he was the only one that, at least so far, that kind of recognized that this isn't okay. And it seems like when he said that, it really like broke through and gave her some awareness of not everything is okay. Yeah, she started to cry and she was crying on cue for so long, like that was a good thing. And she had to, she could fake cry, but she couldn't really cry until her grandfather kind of broke through that facade and kind of nailed it for her individually. So at some point in this conversation, I'm going to read a a little snippet from that part of the book. For those listening on the podcast, we're talking about basically a child actor and needing to develop that career as a young person. And the special skill that Jeanette had kind of developed was crying on demand. It was literally put on the resume. That struck me as very traumatic because the way that she had to go about getting those tears to come was pretty graphic, I think. It bothered me even as I was reading that. So What I would have questioned, I was like, the father, I was like, she felt that he didn't um, provide enough um, or he didn't, wasn't able to display love to her. And then I was also questioning the grandmother. It was just, it just seemed like she was on her own until like we stated earlier, her grandfather, I just didn't see the support from her brothers. And they're young, they're kids, you can't expect them to fill that voice. But her father, and I'm sure he was just scared of the mother, they're also, and I was just so thankful that the grandfather said something. And then, you know, the friendship, I hope, I haven't read past 23, but I hope the friendship with um, Miranda, the other co-star, I'd like to see how that comes about. And to kind of piggyback off of that, I was very angry when I read the part about how her own father misspelled her name on the birthday card i don't even think there was like a message inside of it it was just kind of like a a card and a generic like love dad and she talked about how much it hurt but she was so used to putting on a smile for things and was happy to have something some sort of recognition and that really was heartbreaking to me my mom misspells my daughter's name all the time and my daughter's 22 so she Wow. She gets it. I know. And and it's her first grandchild of two. And I know. And it's, <laughs> but it's like, come on. Like, you know, you're how to spell. It's five letters. <laughs> but it bothers. Well, my daughter laughs about it. She sends me screenshots of it anyway. Yeah. So I heard a couple of people say that they can somewhat identify with the mom character in this book. I guess the first topic that I want to kind of cover is mom's dysfunctions. A couple that I noticed were like hoarding. Somebody had already mentioned like the really high like attention seeking more specifically like I'm a cancer survivor and my bones, you know, to get a closer parking space or to get preferential treatment or to that weird thing where she would like show the video every year and tell the same story. It was very bizarre. And because I'm a therapist, I started like diagnosing and I'm like, uh, there's a condition called histrionic uh, personality disorder where 
uh, you're very like high attention seeking. Um, you almost like get validation from drawing attention to yourself. Again, I don't know this. Uh, I don't know her mom, uh, and I can't obviously diagnose, but that it was giving me like histrionic vibes. Anybody want to like comment on uh, the mother's character or how it kind of resonates with possibly somebody that you know? Um. So one of the things that I thought was very profound is when the mom and the daughter went to go get ice cream and the daughter orders the ice cream that she wanted, you know, like, I don't know if you guys have kids, but they try different flavors and the mom makes it this like huge deal and like starts tearing up and then actually ends up eating all the ice cream as she's like waxing poetic about how the daughter's growing up and how dare she choose a different ice cream flavor. So I just think that was a great model of choose your own histrionic borderline, whatever. It was just a really good example of what that can look like. And I think she was like six or seven and they were getting ice cream with a coupon for free because she passed this audition. So like even like her rewards were her mom's rewards. The mom wanted her to order the the nutty coconut because that's what she had always gotten. And she wanted to try cookies and cream. We hear this word a lot on social media, but this was a true example of gaslighting. So gaslighting is when someone brings something to your attention, uh, possibly a problem, and the the person receiving it then like it's kind of like a boomerang and sends it back to you because you're the problem, not what you brought to their attention. So she started, I think she started sobbing and saying like, oh, well, you've always been my little girl. And if you're making decisions for yourself, then that means you're growing up and you're going to leave me. And it really spiraled down. I imagine living it is much worse, but even just reading about it uh, is like very uncomfortable. I mean, I, the crying part, it just kind of realized now how whenever I talk about my dad, my parents are divorced. When I talk about my dad to my mom, she just deflects with the tears and the crying and the, oh, you know, I'm the victim. I'm the this, I'm the that. When they've been divorced, I'm, I just turned 50 and they've been divorced since I was three. So it, it's bizarre, you know, but also the, just the selfishness and the, you know, not really the care for how her daughter feels. It's more of about what makes the mom comfortable and feels good. So that definitely resonates with me, with my mom, for sure. My mom wasn't very emotional. I knew she loved me and she was there for me. But like you typically view a mom as being the emotional nurturing one. But that was my dad. I didn't get that from my mom. So it's a little hard with some of the things to relate to as far as, but like some of the hoarding my mom had. So I do remember like our house wasn't really clean. Um, It was always messy. There were piles of things. So it was hard to want to have friends come over. Um, There was a lot of embarrassment when I was younger. Um, So like when she talks about the Costco mats and not even like having her own, their own privacy or space. um, I can kind of relate to that because I had to share a room with my sister, but then there's all this stuff piled up as well. So there wasn't a lot of freedom to just kind of grow and be who you were. And I always felt like I had to get out to be able to do that, to be somewhere else, to be somebody else. Um, And you can kind of 
get that from Jeanette that like she wanted that, but she didn't know how to do that. So instead of, because when you're little, you don't have an escape route. So she just created this world where she, how do I keep her from exploding? How do I do this? How do I do? So that's how she tried to manage and deal with what she had to live through. And that was just super hard to read to, to know a little kid had to do that has to do that because she's probably not the only one. The the example that comes to mind, she's this young child and she's trying to get everybody ready for church and everyone's just like lollygagging, but there's also these piles and the whole house is full of like hoarding. Their mats are on the floor. And there was a situation where like the brothers were like kind of lazily getting some cereal and it she knew that her mom would explode if some milk was spilled on the floor. And so she's literally running around, like yearning for this few, I think it was three hours of peace at, uh, and she said it several times. And she's like, oh my goodness, my brother just spilled milk on the carpet. I have to like clean this up before mom walks through because if she walks through and steps on a wet carpet, we're gonna have to stop at the drugstore and get new stockings or pantyhose and it's going to delay us getting there and it's going to interrupt my my time. I just felt that angst of and then it all fell apart, right? Um and then she blamed herself. So she couldn't get it cleaned up fast enough. Mom went off the, you know, she had her little tantrum about it and it, you could it's almost like you could hear glass shattering. It it was just like she tried so hard and it built up to this and it was like in the end, she had learned to blame herself because things didn't go right. She's like, what could I have done differently? That part really hit me, really made me sad to to witness that. And that part kind of resonated me because I felt like I've had to parent my family. And so I kind of felt like her a little bit, like I could understand where she was coming from. And like you said, when the milk was spilled, that part almost played in slow motion in my mind as I read it. Like I knew, like I could just see her squishing in it and like, oh man, <laughs> she's not going to get to church. You know, she's not going to get to her, what does she got? Like pine salt scented, you know, clean, sterile environment. She, and then she says, maybe we'll get there for popcorn time or something like that. Uh, one thing that really stood out to me was, uh, her having to watch her mom pull a knife on her dad, like no kid should have to see that. And the fact that it was probably a very, very common occurrence in their household because dad came home late. Mom's like, you're cheating. We're going through this again. And the fact she's still trying to soothe her parents over to avoid this is crazy. That's a lot of pressure as a little kid. Uh, she mentioned at one point that social services were called several times, I think to the point where uh, there was one altercation and they saw the neighbor like peeking over and it was almost like, is he going to tell on us? Is this going to like escalate? Her mom could bring a lot of angst into a room, but she was also one of the only people who could soothe her. So here's a quote. Um, she said, she can set my body on edge and make me rigid with fear or anxiety, but she can also calm me down. She has that kind of power, end quote. I imagine that would be incredibly confusing. And definitely feeds into, someone had mentioned earlier enmeshment, but another word can be codependency because codependency is basically like, obviously a child is supposed to depend on their parent, but as we kept reading, we saw how 
mom was very dependent on her and would say things like, you're my only friend. The lines of that relationship were very blurred. Personally, my mom, when they, my parents were divorced, I wanted to leave and go live with my dad. And my mom threatened to commit suicide if I left. So that was like, okay, so now I'm responsible for whether you live or die now. Like, you know, like that's, thank you for that gift. That fits in line with what you're saying, John. I mean, thank you for sharing that and being vulnerable. Um, I'm so sorry (laughs) that I can relate, but it's a lot. And having a kid be responsible for their parents living or dying is not okay. Yeah, I see that a lot with uh, folks who, even like people in relationships, where it'll get to the point where one person is like depressed and it, it usually happens with the codependency, right? So the people are enmeshed and, you know, it doesn't just happen overnight, but it kind of gets to that point of codependency and enmeshment. And then the person will literally, uh, whether it's subconscious or on purpose, manipulate the person into, well, if you leave me, I'm going to do this. And I see it a lot as a therapist, you know, people staying in that, that toxic uh, cycle uh, it can be very disruptive. I was just going to say it was unfortunate for Jeanette that she was a girl because I think it was hard for her mother to maintain um, like actual friendships with women because they weren't going to be so easily manipulated. And I think that's why the boys didn't have to deal with that as much. Here she is telling this little girl, you're my best friend. And who doesn't want their mother to love them? And feel like they're this special being to them. And so because she didn't do that to the boys, they kind of got to, I mean, they still had to live there. They still got abuse from her and neglected from her and had to survive that household as well. But I think Jeanette had a special kind of hell with her mother because of the fact that she was a girl. And that was the only relationship that her mom could truly manipulate to have as her own. And that, um, that's where that, I think that codependency came in. It was because they were both women, females, and she could do that to her because of that. And, and maybe not get away with it as much with the boys because there wasn't that, um, connection that you would have with a mother daughter. Definitely. And the codependency that I observed, it was direct how it played out in behaviors and stuff. But a more, the very shocking thing that's still seared into my memory, I think if I had to talk about one thing that was the most, like, I read a couple of times to make sure I wasn't, like, tripping. uh, And it's that she was eight years old and her mom was still wiping her bottom. I think she was, like, at an audition or something like that and had to go to the restroom after holding it for a long time. Uh, because she didn't want to upset her mom or any of the producers. So there goes that people-pleasing again. Then she finally gets to go to the restroom. And at eight years old, the mom, I think, took some paper towels and wet them and basically uh, treated them like a baby wipe and literally was wiping her. That was really bizarre to me. I I found that really, um, it it was disturbing. And I just couldn't comprehend the reasoning. I I couldn't. I couldn't grasp it. I, I didn't understand that at all. Her mom also was doing her hair, like wouldn't let her do her hair. She was on the phone with somebody and 
she was, I forget what she was doing, doing her hair and her mom basically did everything for her, but not because the child wanted to, because Jeanette wanted her to, the mom wanted to, the mom insisted on, you know, we're friends, only I can do it this certain way, you know. So, so the reason she gave a lot was um, you can't do it right or you're not going to clean your hair correctly. Your hair's still going to be dirty. You're still going to be dirty. Yeah. Here's a quote that really uh, jumped out to me to kind of solidify this like codependency and how deeply rooted it was for Jeanette. Quote, and if she's really going to die, what am I supposed to do with myself? My life purpose has always been to make mom happy, to be who she wants me to be. So without mom, who am I supposed to be now? End quote. Um, this is kind of related, not really, but I remember the conversation where the granddad is trying to tell the mom that he thinks she has OCD and the mom is just completely offended by it. To me, it's kind of like you want your kids to be able to, healthy parents want their kids to be able to be successful when they're not around, be successful um, on their own accord and what they want to do. But for her mom, it's like, you're just an extension of me. I don't care what else you want to dream. Even when she tells her mom, hey, I don't think I want to do this anymore. Her mom was like, this is our dream. This is what we always wanted and proceeds to cry to make her feel bad about it. And it's just kind of like, at what point was she ever able to establish an identity that didn't revolve around her mom to understand where she could go from that point? We see that gaslighting at, at work again. And I'm, she sues her mom by singing like a her favorite music. So it was a Phil Collins. We're going to play that and we're going to sing along and be happy, you know? So forget what I just said. I didn't mean it. Kind of like to what we're all talking about. Like she's got that inner voice and it's almost like she's got that inner knowing of what she really wants. But her mom has usurped her in every way to take that power away from her as much as she's tried. I mean, did anybody else cackle, though, that her OCD voice was the Holy Ghost a little bit like died? Yes, I was. I was like, what's going on? <laughs> right. I caught that, too. She's like, thank you, Holy <laughs> Father. <laughs> only only those of us who had two to three hours a week religious <laughs> ceremonies a week, really. My wife uh, listened to it on Audible. And so here I am like a trained therapist, right? And I'm like listening or I'm like reading it and I'm like, oh, well, the Holy Spirit talks to her very specifically, right? I completely, not until it was brought to the attention that I think Jeanette has OCD, did I connect the tapping the underwear five times as OCD, like it, it literally went right over my head. And then really? when it the hit me, <laughs> yeah. A whole trained therapist, yes. And when I when I made that connection, when it was like blatantly put in there, like I think she has OCD. Um, I I remember like throwing the book down and like like scream cackling. I'm like, how did they get this one past me? And how did I not catch it sooner? Um, whereas my wife, who was like reading the same book, she was like, oh, I totally got that right away. It was just interesting how it like went right past me, and I'm like wait a second, now all of these different rituals are starting to make sense. But I just found it was so interesting that the grandfather is more connected to her mental health than anybody, it seems. And he's bringing these things up because in that scene, when she like does her waistband and taps and spins, her mother is in the stall with her in the bathroom. 
like I, cause I re I was like, are you really like, so the mother, so she took her name off of the sign in list, walked back. Her mom went into the stall with her and then she did her little number and then, the, but the mother didn't even catch it. So, but it was the grandfather of all people. So I feel like that they're more connected than we realize, but, for, but Jeanette just doesn't talk about it from her little perspective. You know what I mean? He's got to be aware for him to pick that up. Well, it feels like he might be the only one that's not suffering truly from some type of mental issue. Um, Cause you don't hear a lot like the dad's absent. And I don't know if that's just because that's self-preservation to just stay away as much as possible. Um, because if he's there, he's going to get the brunt of stuff. The boys have created their own little world and are dealing with their things. The grandmother, um, I can't remember a lot about her in this beginning part, but you hear that the grandfather is clearly seeing things, audibly saying things. And yet, because everyone is suffering from their own mental health issues, they're not, of course, the mom didn't think anything of it. She's got her own little weird quirks that she's not fully aware of or doesn't recognize as not okay. So it's not going to, it's going to, yeah, definitely do that. If that's going to help us get you in that audition, thumbs up. Good job. So um, it, it makes me sad for the grandfather. I think there was also, uh, it could be my interpretation, but it was almost uh, from the religious standpoint, I think that recognizing a voice and identifying it as the Holy Spirit was also kind of people-pleasing because it sounded like for her to say, like, the Holy Spirit told me to do this, it was also validating something that mom expected and wanted of her. So it was kind of like cycling in on itself, but that's kind of what I got out of that too. I think it also relates to her desire to be a part of the church and that being a safe place. And if she, if the Holy Spirit's actually speaking to her, then she actually fits in there more than she did before the Holy Spirit talked to her. So it's a, it's a bridge for her to feel like that's more tangible place where um, she might be accepted and have some recognition for something that's hers, not her mother's, so to speak, because the Holy Spirit's not talking to her mother, but he's talking to her. And I think because that was such a safe haven for her, that that is another reason why that was important to her to feel like that was a place she could fit in. Well, I think that timeline also aligns with when she starts to get more um, exposure and more callbacks She's in a constant place of comparison. So is she the best actor? Is she the best? And so in order to fit into that world, she has to perform. And in this world, it seems to be a big part of their faith when they say, has the Holy Ghost spoken to you? And she mentions that she's been making it up for a while. So it it made sense to me how those timelines ran very concurrent. I had mentioned before that we were going to kind of tap back in on the like guilt ridden, like people pleasing, which is a really big kind of underlying kind of reaction to this environment that she's growing. And there were several examples of like people pleasing, but 
the thing that struck me is that there was also a lot of internal like conversation she was having with herself. I caught on to like her annual birthday wish because there's like a lot of importance on that, right? The amount of pressure she had on because of how often her mom would bring up the fact that she had stage whatever cancer and survived, right? That was almost like a manipulative like bargaining chip throughout. Annual birthday wish was to keep her mom alive. That the kid was four and could say the exact name of the cancer is a huge problem. Huge problem. I agree. I agree. And talk about the type of treatments that were involved in very minute, specific detail. Yeah. That's something. Those are adult problems that need to stay at an adult level. I think there's obviously a very, very strong degree of people pleasing, but it's also a degree of self preservation because she's so incredibly isolated. She's um, the daughter who her mother is living vicariously through. She only seems to have a few friends from church that she only sees once a week and they're late. She's homeschooled. She has no like existence. She sleeps on a mat in the, on the floor in the living room. And so I thought that while her burden is very unfair and much of it does seem to be very altruistic. She has that codependence on her mother. There is also a part of it. That's just, that is her whole existence. Like she has to, her mom has to live because that is, that's the codependence, right? That's her place in the world too. Because I wonder, you know, that's just a big thing that I'm seeing is that it's bred out of the isolation. She's really, really isolated, which is ironic given that she's becoming more and more known in the world. I, I think what, what I, when I was reading some of the books, it's just how I, I, don't, I thought she mentioned how she puts her mom on that pedestal. And I, through life experiences, I've come to the conclusion that at some point we all do put our mothers on a pedestal. And then sometimes we see that the mother shouldn't be on that pedestal at, at a level. And we realize that they're human. And I just think it's sad that when we have that realization that our mother isn't human and then their queen is not who we imagine her to be, but then to have a mom who took it to so many different levels, I think it's just was really sad in this um, young lady's circumstance. Really sad. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing because um, obviously we know she grew up to, at least as a teenager, to be uh, an actress on a pretty popular show. But I'm interested to see how that development happens from being so like like isolated, codependent, not really knowing any better. Obviously, with acting and being around peers and stuff like that, she's going to start to notice that things that go on in her house are not very similar to that of other kids. Um, so I'm interested to see how that kind of develops throughout the story. Quote, I was in my head during it because that scary part of me decided to try and speak up. That part of me that doesn't want to be doing this. I don't want to act anymore, I say, before I even realize I've said it. Mom looks at me in the rearview mirror. A mixture of shock and disappointment fills her eyes. I immediately regret saying anything. Don't be silly. You love acting. It's your favorite thing in the world. Mom says in a way that makes it sound like a threat. 
I look out the window. The part of me that wants to please her thinks maybe she's right. Maybe it is my favorite thing, and I just don't know it. I just don't realize it. But the part of me that doesn't want to cry on cue, that doesn't want to act, that doesn't care about pleasing mom, and just wants to please me, that part of me screams at me to speak up. My face gets hot, compelling me to say something. No, I really don't want to. I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. Mom's face looks like she just ate a lemon. It contorts in a way that terrifies me. I know what's coming next. You can't quit, she sobs. This was our chance. This was our chance. She bangs on the steering wheel, accidentally hitting the horn. Mascara trickles down her cheeks. She's hysterical. Her hysteria frightens me and demands to be taken care of. So I'm going to read that part again. Her hysteria frightens me and demands to be taken care of. Never mind, I say loudly so mom can hear it through her sobs. Her crying stops immediately, except for one leftover sniffle. But as soon as that sniffle is over, it's complete silence. I'm not the only one who can cry on cue. Never mind, I repeat. Let's just forget I said anything. Sorry. End quote. So the, I guess, trauma that I guess is happening here uh, as we read the book is that she's having to think of um, her family dying, being killed, um, tragic things happening to her brothers. She's, in order to have the skill of crying on cue, she's basically having to manipulate herself into imagining these terrible things happening and these adults who are supposed to care for her whether they be like these producers and people she's auditioning for it's almost like a party trick to them so they they'd be like oh do it again kind of thing and it's like because we have like the first person perspective on it it, it i felt like a physical reaction as it kept happening and i'm like uh, when she was like in this part where she's like it makes me uncomfortable um, I truly felt that discomfort on her behalf because I can't even imagine. The irony is that she hasn't said she can smile on com- on command yet. And that's what she immediately did. Like the switch goes both directions and it's just a, as harmful. One appears more negative because we associate tears with unpleasantry, but anything uh, disingenuous is uncomfortable. And so just the irony of that chapter ending with her smiling and singing Phil Collins. And I also wonder too, like how much of that inner voice that she's talking about when she says, no, I'm not the only one who can crown demand. If that's adult Jeanette looking back at the situation, like her, her anecdotal dry humor is her kind of processing it now. Whereas, did she, re- I mean, you know, did she really feel that way when she was younger? I don't know how a five or six or seven-year-old could really articulate that. I don't know. That, that, that's kind of what I've been thinking throughout this as I, as I read it. She became a master very quickly. Unfortunately, as, as a small child, she mastered manipulation herself. So she unfortunately probably could articulate even though she she knew things weren't right she knew things were wrong 
Um, and that was the first time I think she really voiced it. And I think she hadn't voiced it up until then because she was afraid of what would happen. And of course, she got the result she thought was going to happen, which is why, you know, she hadn't done it up until then. But I think um, because her mother talked to her like she was an adult and put her in adult situations, she unfortunately was able to articulate that. Um, but I think, yes, going back and looking at her writing this and and whatever, yeah, she can write it a little more eloquently than probably she could have when she was younger. But I think she did have the understanding when she was younger, unfortunately, of what kind of was happening. But I also kind of noticed like back a little bit when she was crying on demand and thinking those horrible things, but she mentioned it felt good to release and get all of that emotion out. She did mention a very kind of cathartic result of her, you know, I guess, wishing or crying or having, being able to express real, true, raw emotion, which she always has to suppress. Um, So I did find that a little interesting and it it was difficult to read. Um, But, but I kind of, I could feel a release internally, like, yeah, like that would feel really good after keeping it together since you were born, you know, and then just being able to just let it all out. I've no, I've watched some of the interviews that she's done as she like tours around with this book and like talks about it. Um, but I also being uh, an adolescent uh, watching the show iCarly that she was on uh, growing up. And of course, now as an adult reading her backstory, it kind of makes sense because the character she played was very like uh, kind of cynical, like almost deadpan, like emotionless in a way but it was like a dry sense of humor that because she was emotionless it was funny but to see that that was really who she was and even as an adult you can see that because she had to almost shape shift with her emotions so much as a child even watching her do interviews it's almost like she's has expressions but she's very like muted and almost like I feel like when, if you go through a long enough period of time where you're having to like manipulate yourself into thinking the worst in order to give a certain expression, you almost like run out of resources. I think for me, it's less seeing some of the interviews, but definitely watching the shows that she was in. Cause on iCarly, she basically has no emotion whatsoever. And the relationship with the, her mom character, even in iCarly is pretty much non-existent. Like you rarely ever see her. It's always like she's fending for herself. Which in actuality, basically, she was doing it in terms of her mom's a hoarder. They're not making sure the kids are taken care of. They're sleeping on the floor. It's all those kind of stuff. So I wonder how much her being able to perform well in that role was pulling into what she really lived at home. Uh, There was a Netflix show that she did after that she effectively played herself again. So and in the um, I know I remember the first time I read this right after it came out, um, I watched the Red Table Talk. And it very much, um, she was very much still that character. She, I mean, she didn't really want to act, you know? So I think it was just her, you know? And so it just seems like it's not really a character that she played. I would like to, I don't know if it's going to be addressed, but she always um, kept blaming her parents for not letting her act. And so far we haven't been told why. And we can see now the grandfather probably 
realized, hey, this wasn't a healthy decision. But I, I, I would like to like to know some of the what made her that way, because there's something there, but it's not being shown so far. And maybe it'll show up in the book. But it's something's there because you just don't get that way. I think people live what they learn. And then she's doing the same thing with her child. So I'd like to know more on that. I'd like to see the outcome. of. Hopefully that'll be addressed. There's one small bit in the beginning where um, I think it's her birthday when she gets the um, Rugrats outfit. And she talks about how her grandmother is very interested in what, what they got, where it was from, how much it cost. Um, was it on sale? Was it not? So that little bit about the grandmother was telling me that she was very superficial potentially and putting her emphasis on the thing versus the person behind the thing. So that made me think that she might, you know, um, be a contributor, you know, to the mother's superficiality or whatever but yeah I think you're right maybe the dad didn't want it he just seems like so far the only normal person you know and the dad's you know always late or whatever and but the fights that they have in front of the kids and the knife like you said like that just and and how you know Jeanette wanted to put herself in between it you know she can make it stop I don't know just I think she starts off with a certain tone of voice and Jeanette knew that it was going to end in like a scream out like situation. And I remember when she grabbed the knife, it wasn't necessarily to threaten anybody, but of course the father is trying to de-escalate, and he's just saying, you know, we don't want anybody to get hurt or anything. And then it's a, it's a very like volatile uh, almost flammable moment because if you address her and even hint or suggest that something is wrong with her, because he, when I read that he said, you need to get help, I already knew that was going to explode from there. Um, and then even like with her having the knife, uh, she was like, well, how could you even suggest that I would do anything to hurt my, my kids? Like it was really very, very toxic and how that that unfolded so um and i just had a thought you might want to edit this out i don't know but i don't know if you've seen the dahmer um tapes at all or the or the, the new dahmer series on netflix but his mother and father had very similar fights in front of him frequently and her picking up a knife his mother was very mentally ill of course she's not a cannibal or whatever but it just it just kind of reminded me that they had that parallel of um, mental illness, and then you know having a child that didn't turn out so great is probably an understatement in that case. But that's a good connection, and um, it's interesting, at least as a you know a therapist who works with like families and things like that. Sometimes an environment can create. Uh, it's like that whole nature versus nurture debate, like nature, meaning your genetics, like kind of what you're born with. And then the, the nurture is your environment, right? So um, in some instances, like you get someone who, you know, has the parents arguing like that, and that creates an environment that goes down the path of like becoming a serial killer. Whereas in this case, it was the path of 
unlearning a lot of things that you were taught. And I think it just goes back to the power of even just like that parent-child relationship because uh, Jeanette was very isolated, but the relationship you have with your caregivers, whether it's your parents, grandparents, or whoever raised you, that is your template for how you're going to do your other relationships. And so depending on how that's set up for you, that's the vantage point that you have to look at the world. And even if you get on the other side of that, say you turn 18 or you go to college or you get your own place or something like that, it takes a lifetime to oftentimes unlearn and to restructure that because when you're given that environment from a young age, you're I think it's called like the zone of proximal development or something like that, um, where it's kind of like if you teach a kid Spanish at a certain age, they can like pick it up like nothing. But once you're out of that window, it's a lot harder to pick it up. So all of these things are being taught at those like really formative years. And I imagine as we continue to read through this memoir, it's going to be an ongoing process of unlearning and unpacking and healing from this template that was given that is not suitable for functioning in society. I love that you use the word template, um, you know, and how you model like a pattern, you know, that is a template, a pattern and repetition and how if you, if you're, I guess, lucky enough to be aware that something's not right, then you can try to fix it. And I see whether, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be because I'm a therapist, but just people in general, all of us either are somebody or know somebody who, as an adult, is still unlearning and unpacking the template that they were given. I know for me personally, um, despite the fact that I'm a therapist, I'm in therapy regularly uh, because my template was really screwed up. And it's truly like before I ever set foot in college or grad school, I was getting years of mental health training just in the experiences, right? Um, So as an adult, uh, I'm 30, I'm still like unpacking um, the template that was given to me and then trying to take away pieces, rebuild things, you know, expand it. It's, so I guess it's part of being human is that we're constantly evolving and trying to learn more and develop better. But I know all of us know somebody or are that person who's trying to do something with the the foundation that we were given to live better lives. Just just to share a little bit, I've been in mental health care and healthcare for like 22 years. And my therapist likes to say all the time, like when you know better, you do better. Um, and that's just such a good and i think the themes in this book is the same you know like i I think that that's just a really good way to be thank you so much for listening to this episode be sure to come back next week for the discussion on chapters 24 through 47 thank you for listening before you go consider supporting this podcast in some of the following ways you can buy me a coffee with the link in this episode show notes You can leave me a five-star review wherever you're listening to this episode. You can follow this show in your favorite app to be notified of new episodes. And finally, you can subscribe by email with the link in this episode's show notes. Thank you in advance for your support, and I'll see you next time.